You're listening to a presentation of The Rising. We're a real church for real people where you can belong before you believe. We're always honored to hear how God is working in your life through this ministry. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, hit us up at wearetherising.com or on Facebook or Instagram. Finally, if you'd like to invest in what God's doing through this church, you can always give online through our site. Thanks again for tuning in and get ready. Lean forward with an expectant attitude to hear a message from God's Word. Dr. Troy Madsen is an emergency room physician at the University of Utah Healthcare, and he described a typical night as an ER physician. Uh, He said he comes in on his night shift and he sees someone who has a fever. So he assesses them and tries to figure out what's causing their fever. Next, he sees someone who's come in with a headache. He said, next thing I know, someone's coming in who's had some flash burns where something's exploded in their face. And so I'm trying to see that person and then moving on from there to someone who has a laceration on their face. He continued on saying, so, so that's kind of what I start out with on the night shift. And then he went on to describe how people will come in uh, with suicidal depressed, uh, how people come in suicidal, depressed, dealing with psychiatric issues. After that, I'll see some people with atrial fibrillation where their heart is beating rapidly and they have to administer a shock to slow it down. From there, we saw someone who's short of breath and they came in saying they just weren't breathing well. After, a severe, uh, after that was a severe allergic reaction, we had to give medication for it to treat it. And then another fever patient came in, someone else with a fever came in, and I finished up the night with another case of a rapid heart rate and atrial fibrillation. He he finished by saying that even though they didn't see these cases that particular night, a lot of common trauma cases they see are people wounded in car accidents, stab wounds, gunshot wounds. They see people with infections, pneumonia, upper respiratory infections. And he said there are some nights where it seems like you just cannot get out of the trauma room, it's just one accident after another. And as a physician in the ER, Dr. Troy Madsen sees a lot of sick, broken, hurting people, and it's his job to assess their condition and give them help and hope. It's crazy. It's almost like the ER is this magnet for sick, hurting, broken people, because when they go there, they find help and hope. And I don't know about you, but I believe that the church is a lot like an ER. The church is a place where people who are hurting and broken and sick can come and find help and hope. And that's what we celebrate this Easter. It's Easter, man, and I am so honored that you're here today. And, uh, and I don't know why, why many of you came. Many of you came because you're ready to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. You're here to celebrate the empty tomb and the truth that the grave is empty. This is a great thing. And others of you are here, and you're wondering if the resurrection is even real. You're like, I don't even know if I believe in this. But I came because I heard a radio ad or a friend told me I got to come and sit with them. I came because I heard there was a church meeting at the North, and I thought that was pretty cool, so let me come check it out. And so I don't even know if I believe in this stuff, but I'm here. And, and no matter your reason for coming this morning, I want to I say I'm so honored that you're here. And here's my goal. Here's my hope today. I want to I help you take one step closer to God today. Wherever you are in your relationship with God, whether you believe in him or not, my hope is that I'll help you take one step closer to God today. 
And uh, if it's your first time here today, man, you picked a great day to be here, not only because it's Easter, but also because we're starting a brand new series. And it's always great to get in on something at the very beginning. And so we're launching this series today called You Say Church, I Say Da Da Da, a blank there. And what we're going to do over the next several weeks is we're going to fill in that blank to explain what the church could be and should be and, and what the church was created for. And so next week, we're going to say, you say church, I say party. Because I just believe that the church should be this party that you're a part of. And then the week after that, you say church, I say movement. And then we're going to wrap up this whole series on Mother's Day by saying, you say church, I say family. And Mother's Day is going to be a great day to be here because we're doing this event called Moms and Mimosas. And so for all the moms, we might even open up to all the ladies, but when you come in, you'll receive a mimosa, a real one. And uh, that's a great way to have a worship experience right there, just get you all loose up. We, we might even serve seconds. So, but today, I want to preach from this title, You Say Church, I Say Hospital. If you would take a moment to write that down in the note section of your note card, You Say Church, I Say Hospital. Because I believe that the church is a place where people who are broken by life can come and find healing. The, the church is a place where people who are beaten down and down and out can come and find hope. And oftentimes when we say church, people have misconceptions of church. This is why I was so compelled to launch a series on Easter about this. Because for so many of us, when we think about church, we have all these misconceptions, all these preconceived notions of church. And so when you tell somebody, hey, you should come to church, or maybe you've had people say to you, you should come to church with me, the response oftentimes is, no thanks. I don't do church. Church isn't for me. I'm not a church person. Because I've done church before, and it's not a good thing. Because we, we draw back to past experiences. We have bad experiences where we were drugged to church, where we were made to go to church, or we went to some churches, and they just seem old and outdated. And so for so many of us, when we think about church, we think of boring. And so you say church, I say boring. Because some of us would say, Church is not a place for me. And some of your friends would say this, I don't ever want to go to church because I've been to church before and it bored the hell out of me. Literally, it bored the hell out of me. I was sitting there and the hell inside of me got so bored it left. And so I know I'm going to heaven because I had to sit through that. So for some people, they think about church and they think of it as boring and outdated and irrelevant and a waste of time. Why would I even want to be a part of that? For others, you say church, I say faith. It's, it's, it's filled with hypocrites. It's these people who, who pretend like they have it all together, but I work with some of them, and I know how they really are. Or, or, or some people, they think about church, and they think that church is only a place for good religious girls and boys, and that's not me, and so I don't have it all together. So, so no thanks, I appreciate it, but, but I'm not really a church person. See, the church has an image problem. And here's, here's why this matters to us. Because when Jesus launched the church 2,000 years ago, he launched the church to be the hope of the world. The church is the hope of the world. Because here's God's plan. God's plan all along was that he would come, he would put on flesh and live as a person of Jesus. Jesus was God in the flesh who lived a perfect life. And we know that Jesus really lived. He was a historical figure. But now the question is, what do you do with this historical Jesus? See, Jesus said that he was the son of God, and he lived a perfect life to show that. He lived a life we can't live. Ultimately, going to the cross, choosing the cross so that he could take your sin and my sin, all of our sin, on himself. 
And what sin is, is everything we've ever done wrong in our life. It's everything we regret. It's all the ways that we've hurt ourselves, all the ways that we've hurt other people. When Jesus went to the cross, he took the thing that was standing between you and God, your sin on himself. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he wiped it away. He got rid of it so that you could have a relationship with God. And so Jesus went to the cross so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be made whole and cleansed, redeemed, so that we could have a relationship with God. And the reason why we want a relationship with God is because it's only in God that we can find true life. And so Jesus made, us, made a way for us to have a relationship with him. So Jesus was crucified, and after the crucifixion, he was buried in a tomb. He was placed in a cave where a stone was rolled over the entrance. And the thought was this would be his eternal resting place. This would be the place that he would stay because that's what happens when people die. They're buried and they stay put, but not Jesus. Because on the third day, his heart started to beat. Blood started to course through his arteries and his veins. His lungs filled up with breath. And Jesus rose again from the dead. Not that Jesus came to, but he was fully dead and out of his own power resuscitated himself and came back to life. He rolled the stone away and walked out of the grave. And that's what we celebrate on Easter, the empty tomb, the resurrected Savior. And here's, here's why this is so important and here's why this matters. It's because Jesus rose again from the dead that we know we can have hope because Jesus conquered the grave. He conquered death. He conquered hell. And if Jesus can conquer that, he can help us conquer anything we face in our life. See, it's because of the resurrection. It's because Jesus rose. You know that you too can rise from despair. It's because Jesus rose, you know that you too can rise from defeat. It's because Jesus rose, you know that you too can rise from depression. It's because Jesus rose, you know that you too can rise from living a meaningless, aimless, empty life and enter into life to the full. It's because Jesus rose that you know that when you believe in him, follow him, and are baptized into him, you know that you too can rise up out of the water clean, whole, and made new. It's because Jesus rose that we celebrate Easter where we're reminded that resurrection didn't just happen, but resurrection happens. This is what we remember on Easter. And so it's been God's plan all along that through faith in Jesus, and allowing that faith to lead us to a point where we say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to follow you. That's where so many people miss it. They say, I believe in God. Good. Even the demons believe in God. And they shudder. That's what, that's what James said in his book in the Bible. I believe in God. I believe in him enough to get me to church on Easter. I believe in God. I think he's real. He exists somewhere up there. But, but what stops many of us is the following part. I believe in God, and because I believe in God, I'm going to allow my faith to make Jesus the leader of my life. And so I'm going to follow him in everything. I'm going to follow him in my sexuality. I'm going to follow him in my finances. I'm going to follow him in my relationships. I'm going to follow him when it comes to my identity. Because I believe in God, I'm going to now follow him and make him the leader of my life. And so I'm not going to try and work out life on my own. I'm not going to try and figure it out on my own. But instead, Jesus, I'm following you and what you say goes in my life. See, when we believe in Jesus, we begin to follow him, making him the leader of my life. And then we're baptized into him. And it's in baptism that we're lowered under the water 
dead in our sin, but we come up a brand new creation alive in Christ, resurrected and redeemed. And this is God's plan for you, for each and every one of you, that if you don't have a relationship with him, you would enter into a relationship with him. And that's my first hope today, that if you've never accepted Christ today, you would make that decision to say, Jesus, I want to follow you, and I want to be baptized into you. I want to be raised to new life. And I'm not talking about you got baptized when you were a baby because your parents made you do that. You had no say in the matter. No, Mom, I don't want, no, you couldn't even talk. I'm not talking about you grew up in church. I'm not talking about your grandma was a believer and so you think you're saved now because she was. I'm not even talking about, well, I try to be a really good person and do more good than I do bad. No, I'm wondering, have you ever made the decision to accept Jesus by saying, Jesus, I believe that you died for me on the cross. You rose again from the dead. And because I believe that, I want to make you the leader of my life and be baptized into you. Have you ever nailed it down so that you know that you know that you know that you've accepted Christ and you're following him now. And you're going to one day rise with him in the end. If you've never made that decision, man, I want to invite you to do that today. When you came in, you received a note card. And at the bottom of that note card is a connect card. At the bottom of that connect card, there's a box that says, I want to accept Christ as my Savior and be baptized. Actually, there's a box that says, I want to know more about baptism. Would you check that box? Mark, uh, drop it off at the black tables. And we'd love to talk to you about having you get baptized and make that decision for yourself. And so that's my first, my, my first hope for you today. If you've never made a decision to accept Jesus and follow him, that you would make that decision today. But my second hope is this, that you would understand that you've stumbled into a place where you can find hope. See, because God's plan for the church is this, that the church would be the hope of the world. And so the church is really just made up of a group of, of broken, jacked up, messed up people who have come together and we've realized our need for a savior and we're trying to figure out what it looks like to live this resurrection life together. That's what the church is. The church is filled with hypocrites because none of us get it right. All of us are messed up. And there's room for one more. There's room for you to be a part of it too. The church is not made up of perfect people. No, the church is made up of broken People who are empty, looking for life and hope and joy. And so my hope today, the second thing I want to help you with is I want to help you understand that you've come to the exact place you need to be in to find hope. You've come to the exact place you need to be in to find joy and peace and love and acceptance and grace and belonging and strength and healing. This is it. You have arrived at the right destination. Because you say church... I say hospital. See, the church is a hospital for broken people. People who have been hurt by life. Some people, when they think about church, they think of this gathering of people who got it all together, who got it all clean and neat and tidy. They've, they've mastered the art of tidying up. Their, their home is a fixer-upper. Their, their life is, is immaculate and amazing, but that's not the case for any one of us, see, every single one of us carry our own hurt and our own brokenness around with us. I mean, for me, I, I grew up for the first 10 or 11 years of my life without my, my father in the picture. He, he never really was in the picture. Uh, my stepdad came in the picture when I was about 12 years old, and so 
then I had the survival of a male figure, but I had to figure out how to deal with that because, you know, for the first part of my life, I, I didn't have a male figure around, and so I was the male figure, and, and I had, had this authority issue that I had to deal with, and my stepdad came into the picture. But for the first 10 years of my life, the formative years of my life, I grew up without my dad there. And I had to sort through all sorts of things with that. You talk about feeling rejected. You talk about wondering why, why wouldn't my dad want to be a part of my life. You talk about having to deal, sort through forgiveness. And so, so for me, like my life has just been this picture of, of dealing with the brokenness of not having my dad around in the picture and never really having a relationship with him at all. For more than half my life, I've struggled with and battled as a man against pornography. And it's a battle that, that had a grip on my life for so long, but then I had to set some boundaries and I had to learn some ways to overcome because I couldn't allow it to continue to conquer me and get the best of me, but it's been a battle that I've had to face. It's been a battle that when I first got married, it was something that we had to sort through together, my wife and I, and discover ways to overcome so that we could have a healthy marriage. I mean, even, even now, on a daily basis, I, I, I fight thoughts of inadequacy and, and insecurity, uh, of greed, of comparison, of jealousy. Uh, there, there's times where I just wonder if I'm good enough as a, as a husband, if I'm good enough as a father, if I'm good enough as a pastor, if I'm good enough as a leader, am I, good, am I a good enough speaker? I mean, even then, I'm stumbling over my words. And so there's times where I just wonder, am I good enough? And there's this brokenness. There's this pain inside of me. There's this hurt. There's this incompleteness that I have. And that's just a paragraph of how jacked up I am. I mean, it goes on for pages. I don't have time for that. You don't have time to sit here, and this isn't a counseling session for me. But I'm broken. I'm jacked up. And even as I was thinking through this and, and writing this, uh, there was this fear that crept up in me and said, you can't share that with people. I mean, it's Easter. You're going to have all these people sitting in the Norva. You don't want to tell them how messed up and how broken you are. Instead, what you should do is give them cleverly crafted, alliterated axioms they could rapidly regurgitate on Instagram. Then they'll think you're clever. Then they think you're great. And then, you know, because then they'll just quote you. And, and then it's like, wow, that pastor's so awesome. I want to follow a pastor like that. But, but then reason came back in and beat the fear away. And I was reminded, no, I need to share that. I'm just as broken as you are because I just believe that people would rather follow a leader who's always real than one who's always right. And I could have taken this as a time to stand up and wax eloquent and get you impressed with me and tweet me and Instagram me and Facebook me and wow, that pastor was so great. But, but I just believe that people want to follow not a perfect pastor, but one who's perplexed by his own pitfalls because you got problems, same here. You don't have it all together, same here, same here. And it's in sharing our brokenness that the power of Jesus shines. It's in, showering, it's in showing our powerlessness that Jesus gets the stage and his power begins to shine because if he can do something through me, even me? How great is that? He gets the glory. If he can do something through you, even you, he's the one who gets the glory. 
It's amazing to me that God can use broken, messed up, jacked up people like us to do great and amazing things. And I believe that God wants to do something great in and through your life. And so you're here on purpose. You're here for a reason. Because God wants you to know that you are loved. That your brokenness does not define you, but he's come as a great physician to restore you and to heal you and to make you completely new. And so you say church, I say hospital. You say church, I say hospital. Some people, you say church, they say judgmental, hypocritical, pretending to be put together. But here we say hospital because the church is a hospital for the hurting. The church is a hospital for those whose marriage is so shattered, they've come in limping, looking for a way to begin the mending process. The church is a hospital for the teenager who's battered by insecurity, coming in looking for a dose of confidence. It's a hospital for the single 34-year-old who's beat down by loneliness, longing to feel whole and complete in their current situation. It's a hospital for the guy who's injected himself with inadequacy, hoping to get free and find his true strength. It's a hospital for the couple who had a miscarriage and they need to be surrounded by compassion. This is a church, a hospital, where everyone, no matter who you are, where you've been and what you've done, no matter your ailment, no matter your anxiety, and no matter what you're going through, this is a hospital where you can come and find healing and become whole. So you say church, I say hospital. And if anybody understood this better than anybody else, there's this guy named Matthew. See, Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples, but he didn't start off that way. See, when Jesus started his ministry 2,000 years ago, he, he, he accumulated this following, this gathering, this crowd of people who followed him everywhere he went, and they wanted to learn from him, and, 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 and there were some fanboys in the crowd who wanted to be close to Jesus, and they wanted greater access to Jesus, and they wanted to learn from him one-on-one, -on -one. and one of the things that Jesus did was he, he looked out at the crowd, and he hand-picked, he hand-selected some guys to be his, his followers, his close followers, his disciples, his posse, his crew, his boys. But Matthew wasn't one of those guys. Matthew wasn't in the crowds following Jesus around. Matthew wasn't clamoring to get close to Jesus. Matthew was actually far from Jesus. And I think the reason for that is because Matthew might have had some misconceptions about Jesus. See, for Matthew in his life at that time, if you were to say Jesus, he would say, well, I'm not good enough for him. You say, Jesus, there's no way he could ever love me. I mean, this is probably what Matthew thought because of who Matthew was. But then we see everything change for Matthew. Matthew actually writes about the time that Jesus called him and the gospel that he writes about Jesus. And so Matthew writes this book explaining the ministry of Jesus. And in this book that Matthew writes, he talks about when Jesus called him. And when Matthew talks about when Jesus called him, he writes about it in third person. He says this, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew, or a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And so Matthew is writing about Matthew. He's writing about himself. And so what he's saying is, as Jesus went on from there, he saw me. He saw me sitting at my tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. I want to I take a moment just to provide some, some color to this context so that we better understand what's going on here. See, Matthew was a tax collector. And back in Jesus' day, being a tax collector was a hated job. I mean, even now, you hate the tax man, right? If you owe taxes right now, you hate the IRS. 
But back then it was even worse. Like people hated tax collectors for several reasons. One is they collected taxes for the Roman Empire. And so there was this great uh, hate for tax collectors because when I give you my money, you're now going to give that to the empire that conquered us. See, Israel at the time was a conquered nation. And the tax man comes by working for the empire that conquered them and says, give me what you owe the nation that conquered you. And so they have to pay taxes to the empire that conquered them. Not only that, but as they pay their taxes, they're funding and fueling this machine that's going to continue to conquer other people. So Matthew is working for this system that's oppressing people. And then on top of this, when tax collectors would collect taxes, they would charge more than what people actually owed. Because the way for a tax collector to get paid was you pay what you owe Rome, but I need to charge you more so I can get paid. So now you're paying me to take your money from you. And what would happen is tax collectors would often charge more than they should so they could get paid more. Whatever they charge people is what they got paid. So if you owe Rome 100 bucks, I'm going to charge you 150. I'm keeping the 50, and that's going to feed my lifestyle. And so tax collectors were seen as cheats and swindlers and scoundrels. And so this is who Matthew is. Matthew is a tax collector, and he's sitting at his tax booth. Now, no doubt Matthew has been ostracized by his family. We've kicked you out. We don't want you to be a part of our family because of what you do. No doubt Matthew has no friends. I mean, he's been kicked out of the synagogue because of what he does. And so his Jewish friends, the community, is something that he's not a part of anymore. Matthew probably deals with greed and, and lying, cheating. Matthew deals with all this stuff, this insecurity. He's had, he's had to deal with ridicule that people have tossed his way. And so Matthew is hurt. He's broken. And, and you know some hurt, broken people. What happens when we get hurt and broken is we put up a wall. We put a shield up. We guard ourselves. Sometimes we come across as aggressive or rough because we don't want anybody to get too close because they might hurt us or they might touch that spot that's too hurt. And so Matthew may very well have been this gruff guy. The world's turned his back on him, so he's turned his back on the world. And he said, there I was, sitting at my tax collector's booth, and Jesus comes along and he sees me. And in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, he said, come follow me, follow me. And I imagine in this moment, Matthew's eyes were open as he realized, wait, I'm, I'm not too bad. I'm not too far gone. Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, has called me to follow him. It was in this instance when Matthew bumped up against the Savior of the world that his life was forever changed. My hope for so many of you today is that this would be a day that you collide with the Savior and your life is forever changed. But Jesus calls Matthew, he says, come on, follow me. And Matthew's excited, he's forever changed. He's accepted now, whereas before he was rejected. And so he says, Jesus, we gotta celebrate. We gotta commemorate this event. This is awesome. I need to have you come over to my house. Let's have a party. Jesus says, okay, I'll come on over. And after that invitation, I imagine Matthew probably thought, oh crap. Who am I gonna invite to this party? Jesus is coming over. 
My family isn't coming because they've written me off. I can't invite them. I don't have any good religious friends. I've been kicked out of synagogue because of what I do. The only people I know are other tax collectors like me. The only people I know are cheats, swindlers, thieves, scoundrels, rabble-rousers. There's a vocabulary word for you. Well, I guess I'll invite them to come to my party. I guess I'll, I'll just invite all the people that I know. I mean, they don't seem to be Jesus type of crowd, but, you know, that's all the people I know, so I'll invite them to my house. Because Jesus is a religious guy, a good guy, and he has it all together, but the people I know don't have it all together. I hope Jesus is okay with being around broken, hurting, jacked up, messed up people. Well, we'll see. Matthew 9.10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So here's the picture. Jesus is at this party with Matthew and all these tax collectors show up. And it says there were sinners there. This is code word for bad people. There were some immoral, bad people who didn't have it all together. And here's the thing, too. When the scriptures say that there are sinners around, nine times out of ten, that's code word for saying they were prostitutes. So here Jesus is at this party with Matthew, and there's tax collectors and immoral people, and it's only a matter of time till the prostitutes show up. Jesus, in the center of all these broken, messed up, immoral people, and he loves it. He loves it. This actually is the perfect picture of what church is. Church is this place, this gathering where Jesus is at the center and he's surrounded by broken, jacked up, messed up, immoral people like us who are clamoring to get to know him saying, I need help, I need hope, I need some healing because I don't have it all together. You say church, I say hospital. And this party at Matthew's is a picture it is a perfect picture of what the church really is. But not everybody understands that. Not everybody gets that. Because here, here's what happens in verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, the Pharisees were religious people, were religious leaders. I don't know where you are on the spectrum, but if while I've been talking about Jesus being surrounded by broken, jacked up, messed up people, you're like, I don't really know about that. But the religious people saw this, and they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And you know they said it that way too, right? Ugh. Can't believe it. We don't get it. This doesn't make sense. He's this religious guy. He's good. He has it all together. Why does he choose to surround himself with people who are broken and bleeding and hurting spiritually? On hearing this, Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus said, so the Pharisees said to the disciples, hey, how come your master, and Jesus heard it, he said, hold on, don't talk to them, talk to me. You got a problem with what's going on, address me. And so Jesus, Jesus said to him, okay, I want to set it straight, I want to help you understand. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And this is Matthew's main point. That Jesus came as a great physician to heal those who are sick with sin. Jesus says, I didn't come to, to, to reach out to righteous people. Righteous people don't need me. They got it on their own. 
which, by the way, none of us are righteous. If you're hearing this and you're like, man, this is a good sermon for all those broken people, you missed it. Because it's you too. And your brokenness is pride. Your brokenness is that you just don't see it. Jesus said, I came for the sick because I need a doctor, doctor, to bring me to life. I mean, I'm not a good singer, but, you know, that's, that's whatever. Figure I could throw an Eminem, Dr. Dre song in there. But this is Matthew's main point, that Jesus came for the jacked up, messed up people because Jesus is the great physician. He's the healer. And Jesus has the power to heal us and help us because of the resurrection. Because Jesus rose again from the dead and he conquered the grave, he can help us rise in whatever brokenness we're feeling and experiencing. See, Jesus is the only one who can redeem you from the power of insecurity that you feel. Jesus is the only one who can mend your feeling of inadequacy and purposelessness. Jesus can help you overcome your struggle, your addiction, your habit. Jesus is the only one who can mend your marriage. He's the only one who can restore what's broken in you. He's able to erase the pain of your past and replace it with the power to carry on. And it's in the church that we come together as a group of broken people and find the healing that Jesus offers. So you say church, I say hospital. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Robert Moore and Kenneth Wright, but there were paratroopers who landed on Utah Beach on D-Day. In World War II, more than 150,000 troops, American, Canadian, and British, assaulted five beaches during Operation Neptune to liberate Europe from German occupation on what we know as D-Day. And over 13,000 paratroopers descended on the land, and among them uh, were the 101st Airborne Division, the Screaming Eagles. And among these paratroopers were Robert Wright and Kenneth Moore, both 19-year-old private class medics. D-Day was their first taste of actual combat, and the two medics were dropped in drop zone D, where they fell under enemy fire immediately. Both medics had only first aid kits and no weapons, and Moore had only received two weeks of medical training before jumping on D-Day, and his medical training consisted of stopping the bleeding from a wounded soldier. There were just minutes on the ground, and the fighting was brutal. And so Moore and Wright set up a triage unit in an old Roman-style church in a nearby village where they brought in both American and German soldiers to work on them and help them and heal them. What would happen is one of the medics would haul in one soldier and assess them and begin to take care of them. And while they were doing that, another medic would run out and grab another soldier and bring them in. And they didn't, they didn't pick and choose who they brought in based on the uniform that they wore. They just saw people who were broken and, and hurting and in need of help. And they brought them into this church to heal them and to fix them and to mend them. They used a wheelbarrow to bring soldiers in. And as they um, went out onto the battlefield, the fighting would cease momentarily as they were protected by the 
medic red cross on their shoulder. They would grab a wounded soldier, bring them back in, and the fighting would pick back up. And while they were treating soldiers, there was a time where the, the German infantry had beat back the lightly armed paratroopers from the town, and the German soldiers rushed into the church to kill the American soldiers that were there. But when those German soldiers saw that the medics were working both on Americans and Germans, they left them alone and let them continue their work. There was another time where a German officer came in and he pleaded with the medics, asking them, can I bring some more of my soldiers to be healed? And the medics replied saying, we treat human beings, not uniforms. Bring them. And the fighting was so bad around the church building that the stained glass windows were shot out. And there was a time where a mortar shell crashed through the roof and collided with the floor, but it didn't explode, sparing everyone in the church building. There's a scar still in the floor to this day in that church building from where the mortar shell landed. It said that Moore and Wright worked for three days straight without sleep, treating the wounded, and they were able to save over 80 soldiers because of their effort. And both Moore and Wright received the Silver Star when they returned home. And once the war was over and the Allies had won, the people of the French village came together to restore the building. And they decided to replace the shot out stained glass windows with new stained glass windows. Windows with images of paratroopers so that people could forever be reminded of what took place that day in that church building. And as they continued to renovate the building, they came to the pews, the blood-stained pews. See, Moore and Wright had used the pews as makeshift hospital beds and workbenches to, to treat those who were bleeding and dying. And many of the soldiers had bled all over the pews. And the question that the people of the village had to answer is, what do we do with the blood-stained pews? Because nobody wants to come to church and sit on a pew that's been stained with blood. That's gross. So what do we do? And they could have sanded down the pews to get rid of the blood. That's what some churches do. Let's get rid of the blood. Let's make it neat and clean and tidy. They could have, they could have gotten new pews. Let's just replace them. Let's get new ones. This is gross. They're stained with blood. But what the people of the church, what the people of the French village decided to do was to put a clear coat on the pews so that the blood would be forever preserved on the pews. So that the blood on the pews would serve as a reminder that this church was once and will always be a hospital for those who are broken. What do we do with the blood-stained pews? See, some churches sand them down to get the blood off, but not here, not in this church. We don't have pews, but I want to announce to you this morning, we are a church of the blood-stained pews. This is a place where hurting people can find healing. See, we're a real church for real people. And if you're desperate, if you're down and out, if you're broken down, hemorrhaging from the hurt and the pain of life, welcome. You've stumbled into the right place. 
Jesus came for the sick, and that's why we're here. Not just for the physically sick, but for the spiritually sick. We're a church for those who are sick with sin, poisoned from toxic relationships, hurting from despair, bleeding with regret, and ultimately longing for something greater. See, you've stumbled into the right place. We're a church of the blood-stained pews where you can be made whole. And so no matter your ailment, no matter your hurt, no matter how bad you get beaten up by life, this is a place where you can find healing. And so you say church, I say hospital. You say church, we say hospital. Thanks so much for listening. We pray God inspires, challenges, and motivates you to become greater through what you've just heard. Again, be sure to check us out at wearetherising.com. Remember, your best days are still ahead.